forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is, as you well know, um, a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and become one of the supporters that helps this podcast continue. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. So I don't usually talk about my personal life on this thing, but um, maybe you should know that about three weeks ago, I moved from Kansas City to Chicago. And then uh, a week ago, moved from Chicago to Baltimore. And the reasons for this are complicated, but let's just say that trying to do a weekly podcast in the midst of all of this change and chaos has been difficult. Throw in Mercury and Mars going retrograde and a couple eclipses and it's been fucking insane. So um, it's been difficult scheduling guests. It's been difficult doing anything other than lying on the floor crying or um, trying to coax my cat out from behind the refrigerator of the 10th place that she's stayed in in the, in the past uh, month. But anyway, um, this is all to explain why the guest of this podcast is the guest of the last original podcast that we had, which is also the man I married, uh, Nicholas Melo. And you know, when I got married, I had a conversation with my friend who said, just don't go all Tori Amos on me, referencing the fact that after Tori Amos got married, she went from being a musical genius to someone who only made sad albums um, about how happy she was, despite the fact that all of her songs were about how her husband was definitely cheating on her. And she started getting a lot of plastic surgery and started to become incapable of talking about anything other than her husband or her daughter. So I promise that I'm not becoming a full Tori Amos figure on you. It's logistics, it's scheduling, it's me trying to create some sanity in my life right now. And after this, we have some wonderful women scheduled. We'll be back to our regular sort of situation. Um, but for this, we're going to continue our David Fincher series to talk about the Netflix show Mindhunters. <laughs> I wrote a piece about Mindhunter, so I just want to apologize to anybody who read it because these are the exact same ideas. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't come up with anything revolutionary since um, having written that piece, but um, my my guest perhaps has. Um, so Maybe we can build something revolutionary together. I don't okay. know. Okay. Um, so we are going to talk about the Netflix series. David Venture created Netflix series Mindhunter. Um, which to me is kind of the most, the most interesting reading of it is, um, as the character study of, of Holden. Um, so brief, brief synopsis time, um, because just in case you're listening to a podcast of a show you have not watched, it's about the beginning of the FBI behavioral sciences department, uh, criminal profiling, which is very controversial because most of the time it doesn't fucking work. 
Um, but uh, but anyway, here we are, and the primary character is Holden, um, who is the kind of young whippersnapper who kind of tries to create the behavioral sciences department in within the FBI with the help of a ragtag team. Of, yeah, and he goes through a very interesting transition, right? Yes, that's the most interesting thing about him. So tell me what interests you about about Holden. Oh, well, you know, it's like this uh, very quintessential figure of a insecure male that uh, goes through a process and then sees himself as a genius figure and then says, fuck everything. And then that makes it so compelling, right? It's this idea that um if we make um if we fuck the right people for a greater good then it will pay off you know it'll pay off in holden's case that it pays off at creating this criminal profiling thing that might serve a bigger purpose or whatever but it's like that's the meta of the idea of it yeah so he's trying to this is the birth of the the understanding that there's a new kind of uh, criminal in society, which is the serial killer. Um, and Holden starts the show as being very sort of, not just wide-eyed and innocent, although he is that, but presenting in a very sort of feminine way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, like um, has some sort of a clue of what he's looking for but needs some sort of a reaffirmation from external sources, which is very interesting because those external forces come manifested in the series in the shape of women, you know, mostly his girlfriend, Debbie, which is, uh, what's her major? She's psychology or sociology. Sociology, you got it. Um, Then she, she's like, uh, have you read Durkheim and so on and so on? And um, things that come as a revelation to Holden at the beginning of the season, right? Um, then it evolves in a way that then Wendy comes on board as well. She's kind of the prolix of this idea of uh, behavior sciences and whatever. And then there's a turn in which Holden kind of gets soaked up by this idea of the toxic masculinity to talk about it we we will flesh it out a little bit further but um he gets absorbed by these behaviors and his ego grows and then he dismisses debbie dismisses wendy and those the things like how he wants to do it yeah it starts as a performance right he wants to sort of mimic the behavior of um the serial killer that he's in conversation with um ed kemper and so he takes on this sort of Hyper masculine role and completely changes what is his natural body language, which is very feminine and, and very sort of invested in who he's talking to and very open and very vulnerable. Um, and then you see when he starts to talk to Ed Kemper, he takes on this sort of like the thing I notice the most is that when he's when he's in this sort of feminine mode, he's making direct eye contact with the person that he's talking to, like to the point where. You know, there are a couple of scenes where he's in an airplane seat 
talking to his partner and he turns his whole body in order to face him at the, uh, and and to be able to have a conversation in that way. And then when he's talking to Ed Kemper, who's right um, across from him, he looks off to the side. He sort of addresses the air, um, which is a very sort of masculine thing to do is to not connect with the person that you're, you're talking to because you're not talking to them, you're talking at them, right? Um, but then the performance becomes sort of solidified. He starts not just performing it, but sort of taking in um, these overly exaggerated masculine qualities. Yeah, and then he kind of absorbs different parts from all the people that come through through the through the season, right? Like uh, Bill Tench, Wendy herself, and even Debbie, um, which is a it's a very interesting thing because then there's a transition in which in he starts as the one that is soaking these behaviors and kind of being very curious and observant about them. And then when he starts performing them, then Fincher very keenly starts putting characters that kind of admire Holden and are eager to absorb these performances that Holden has built, right? So for example, at the end of the season, um, and this is a very Fincherish thing in not all of the movies, but most of them, there's always like this young policeman that it's naive and that kind of wants to absorb those things. You see that in Gun Girl as well, for example. Um, even even in, 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 in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, the detective, forgot his name, um, but uh, he begins as a authority of, like a figure of power and then kind of bends into the knowledge that Daniel Craig, that Mikael Blomqvist kind of brings to the table. So um, it's very interesting how how that happens and how Fincher is so aware of those things, those transitions of um, observing, performing and being adored. And then at the end, what happens with Fold or uh, with Holden that um, he kind of soaks it in and then the rest is kind of irrelevant until the last scene of the first season. But the thing, one of the things that he absorbs is this sort of hatred of, of women. You know, he, he sort of talks, I think it's in the first episode where, you know, uh, Debbie, his girlfriend, the girl that he just met who becomes his girlfriend, um, asks him, you know, how's your relationship with your mother? And, he, and he's like, actually, it's really good. But then he's sort of talking shit about his mother by the end of the season. Um, but all of these men all these serial killers like are just sort of talking constant um hatred and bile about their mothers about love not given or um too much love given um and there's so little talk about the fathers which i find very interesting and i was reading about this recently um some sort of serial killer expert or um or whatever whatever that that job is exactly and i worry about this person but um you know the the theories used to be that all forms of deviance and mental illness were somehow connected to how the mother was behaving it's, if it was schizophrenia it was because you had a icebox mother right like a, you have a emotionally non-responsive mother if you had a serial killer it was something to do with the mother um and this guy um 
and now I can't remember his name and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to Google it, but this, this guy, I swear it exists. I'm not making this up just to prove a point. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he points out, you know, we are always sort of looking to the mother to, to give, uh, um, information about the inner world of her children. But this was a generation of boys raised by, uh, world war two vets who were probably PTSD out of their fucking skulls and had no outlet for that. And so we're either entirely absent or if they were present, they were beating the shit out of their kids a lot, which is certainly the experience of my father, who's not a serial killer. But um, anyway, um, you know, so when we talk about the sort of greatest generation, the greatest generation um, created a lot of uh, serial killers and misogynists and woman haters. So I just wanted wanted that information on this podcast episode. <laughs> so, so do you think like... Um so mommy issues we're talking about mommy issues and male individuals that creates uh, serial killers mm-hmm. um what about daddy issues inflicted on men or mommy issues inflicted on women right i mean i think that it's um well daddy issues inflicted on women it's just like every yeah that's every, yeah that's, that's the history everyone uh, every United woman States. i know has mm. been you know uh fucked up by their fathers sometimes literally um <laughs> But, um, yeah, but, you know, women uh, filter trauma differently than than men do. Yeah, but then how does that manifest, right? Like, um, um, so if in men, if in men, mother's issues kind of manifest in this despisal and this completely disregard of women's humanity, how does it manifest in these other cases, right? Like, would you say that uh, that issues inflicted on a woman becomes some sort of a way of performing that masculine dominance outside of it? Or I don't know. No, the opposite. It's like cutting and eating disorders. It's like, it's violence inflicted inwardly. That's very interesting. Yeah. But then, you know, I mean, Holden tries by the end of the series to turn both these very sort of fascinating women, um, his girlfriend and his boss or his colleague or however, whatever position Wendy actually holds um, into his mom in the way of like he is the um, transgressor and he's doing whatever it takes to get the job done. And then these women just want to put these rules on him, these boundaries on him. And he treats, you know, treats them in the way that a um, eight year old boy being told that he has to clean his room before he can go out and blow up a frog with fireworks or whatever young boys do. Um, to, uh, <laughs> you know, in that same like eye rolling kind of um, hating attitude. But yeah, it, it's sort of like um, everything comes back to the the mother relationship in in this particular series, right? So, so there's like a couple of things coming out of there. So, the first one I'm tying it to these explorations that Fincher does in the series and in his whole body about toxic masculinity. Um, would you say that? Um, so these 
as you were saying, like the relationship with women and how he turns into women and how his behaviors are kind of excused because they're serving like a like a greater good, you know, the idea of building uh, whatever methodology to reduce crime or whatever, whatever. Do you think that uh, toxic masculinity is kind of um, endorsed by this idea of, yeah, there's these dominant behaviors complicated behaviors, dismissal of the female's ideas, even if they're embodied by the idea of the mom or not, and that these things kind of serve a bigger purpose, right? Like uh, we've discussed it before, but um, the idea of having a wife as a status symbol or the idea of um, inflicting dominance as a way of establishing yourself in the workplace or in the household or whatever, whatever. Um, because that's something that I find very interesting about um, Holden's case, right? Like clearly the signals that uh, this is complicated and that is not such a straightforward process, they're evident, right? And curiously enough, they're brought up by the female characters like uh, Wendy and Debbie that, um, there is like a preconceived idea that these men are guilty and that's very complicated. And that if you go on like a cowboy uh, fabricating these situations, then that's just gonna create bad rep against what the, the big picture of this process, right? Um, and Holden is kind of conscious about these things, but he gives a shit about them, right? Because he's serving this greater purpose that he thinks he's portraying on it. So I wonder to which extent um, do we as men excuse a bunch of complicated and fucked up behaviors towards women or towards ourselves and our representation of women to serve a greater good? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the whole idea of holding coercing a um not only coercing a confession from a, a who he assumes is a killer but is not actually sort of in evidence um and then sort of sabotaging that by bragging about it drunkenly at a bar and then it makes it into a newspaper article so he puts the whole case in jeopardy um but he, he sort of convinced himself that whatever it takes to get the job done, to get the conviction um, is worth it is, yeah, I think it's part of it. I mean, it's part of, you know, the CIA um, torturing innocent people for the greater good because, you know, they got a little bit of intel, which was entirely bullshit, but you know, whatever. Um, but the, yeah, that idea of, um, I think it's just control. You want to control the outcome. And so it doesn't matter to you how how it gets done. Yeah. Funny enough that you mentioned that uh, that scene in the last episode when he pulls out this confession and then they're in the bar. In the bar, there's a young, handsome policeman kind of endorsing and adoring these methods of Holden, right? Who was originally disgusted by them, right? Like he, in the scene when Holden was sort of talking about the 12 year old girl's pussy, the, the dead 12 year old girl and um, speculating on how much pubic hair she had in order to sort of um, lure the, the, 
potential, uh, well, the suspect into a sense of, you know, well, we're all just guys here. It's okay to just spill it and say whatever you want. You know, his look is of disgust, but the fact that it got the job done and got a confession out of the guy, then all of a sudden he is adoring. Then all of a sudden he's like, teach, teach me your methods, you, you genius man. Yeah, and, and it overrides the disgust and becomes this amazing thing, which goes back to the thing of toxic masculinity. Like, um, I talk by myself, I mean, for myself, um, I grew up in a household with women, have this clear adoration of strong women and so on and so on, but I have fallen into these behaviors. And uh, to which extent have I fallen into these behaviors because I've seen that they serve a greater purpose because of well, what I perceived was a successful position for my dad or what I perceived were peers from high school and college and work and whatever um, seem in a successful way. So it's, um, it's very interesting because it kind of turns itself into a cycle, right? Um, but then <laughs> um, like the like the Manic Street Preacher song, right? Judge Yourself, one of my favorite songs. I have it tattooed in my wrist. Um, and kind of the, 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 one of the verses of the song says, find your truth, face your truth, speak your truth and be your truth. Uh, and going to that uh, speak your truth and face your truth kind of part of it, the last scene of the first season of Mindhunter, when Holden, is talking to Kemper. Um, to me, it's kind of himself facing himself, you know, what created all of those behaviors and then having this cathartic moment where he will have to choose. We don't know because that's, I guess that's the hook for s season number two and Netflix, you got us all hooked. Um, but then, then that's that process, right? He acknowledges all the fucked up thing that is going on. And then is he going to embrace it? Is he going to reject it? And uh, what's the process of it? And what that means if you're going to create a metaphor in between that scene and what toxic masculinity is, right? What happens when you face off and you figure out that you have fucked up basically, then what comes next? What comes next when you face your truth, right? Then what becomes the truth? That's something very interesting from that scene, last scene in between Holden and Kemper. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's not just that we see how um, these sort of, you know, I mean, I hate I hate the term toxic masculinity because I, I, I don't feel like it's quite um, fair or um, even really very descriptive. Uh, or accurately descriptive, but to me, it is um, a better phrase for it is peak Michael Douglas, because he played, <laughs> you know, for 20 years, these characters of, you can't tell me what to do. And, um, and you know, the movie Falling Down being the kind of very obvious over the top example of this, of just like, um, him go, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but my father was obsessed with it. I don't know why I keep talking about, my, anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, he goes into a 
fast food restaurant and it's like 10 minutes past the time where they stop serving breakfast and he orders a breakfast item and they're like we don't serve that right now and so then he pulls out the gun and is like make me my fucking breakfast and you know has all these sort of this sort of ranting uh thing about all these arbitrary rules and on and on and on basically holding these middle uh not middle uh, minimum wage um employees hostage and obviously it's it's not their fault that he's having a bad day but uh but he's held up as being this sort of anti-hero or renegade or so like embodying some sort of bravery for standing up to corporate decisions that say 11 a.m is the the cutoff time for breakfast and then after falling down, you had the TV show House, where the you know you had a doctor who was too brilliant to be um, to be penned in by rules of when you can and cannot operate on a patient's brain. You had um, all these lawyer shows about lawyers fucking their clients um, and breaking rules in order to get people off, um, and and so on and so on. Like there was for fifteen some years just nothing but the anti-hero nothing but um these people who were too too brilliant to be decent to other people in order to uh, get their jobs done yeah and that's it's fucked up because that creates this uh stereotype of um an individual that is very appealing especially to uh fragile male individuals you know i, I mean I've been there. Um, one of the most uh, influential movies, and now we're talking about Mindhunter, produced by David Fincher, and some of the episodes directed by him. Um, yeah, The Social Network is like one of those poignant films in my in my personal journey or life. That it's like, oh yeah, this idea of uh, the guy that fucks up with his girlfriend um, and then steals an idea. And then does all of these fucked up things that serve this greater purpose of a multi-billion dollar uh, company that fucks everybody. But of course, that is not portrayed in the movie. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, and Mindhunter does such a good job at exploring that in such a small scale. Uh, with all the players involved and and of course it's only the first season we'll have to see but yeah I like that about it do you think Holden is a genius yes <laughs> I know <laughs> I know that's not the answer to be expected out of the question but um, um, I mean it's rather complicated one could make the argument that um being a genius or a visionary or whatever is not about being the genesis of an idea but rather recognizing things around you and putting them together in ways that it's unfamiliar to the times that you're living so yes maybe in that sense holden is kind of this idea of course this is very fucked up because it's endorsed by the idea that he stole ideas from debbie and he kind of used Wendy's reputation to kind of boost his ideas, although he never ever listened to her in an honest way. No, he's just trying to fuck her. 
Do you think so? Oh, yeah. No, uh, obviously. And it wasn't until she, I mean, once she sort of firmly rejected him, I mean, he was like, you know, trying to drive her around and helping her with her suitcase and doing all the sort of chivalrous fuck me, fuck me kind of stuff. Um, And then it became clear she had no interest in him because she's a lesbian. Although I don't think he ever figured that out because anyway, because Holden seems, you know, naive. But um, (laughs) um then it becomes well if you're not my lover then you're my mother right and so i'm going to treat you in this condescending way but yeah anyway continue do you think uh wendy and debbie something's gonna happen there in season two i am desperate for wendy and debbie to fuck because debbie obviously deserves i mean he there's so much head there's so much cunnilingus in the show it is peak cunnilingus in the show um which is nice it's nice um that that's happening but i feel like wendy could do a better job and she deserves debbie deserves a break after putting up with holden's bullshit for a while yeah so i think that holden is not a genius i think that he's i think that he thinks that he is um but i think he's leeching onto other people's ideas and using them for himself in the in the way that um um you know, our culture has an idea of what a genius looks like. And it's a solitary figure um, who is entirely self-made and Holden's trying to um, become that. Um, there's a that moment at the on the last episode, which I had forgotten about, where um, uh, Kemper asks Holden if he's an expert and, Kemper, and Holden says no. And then Kemper says, but you want to be. And Holden says yes. And I was thinking about that because um, I was listening to this podcast in the dark, um, which is an investigative journalist podcast. And she's investigating um, a man who's been in prison for 20 years on death row, who almost certainly did not commit the murders that he was put in for. But in the original trial, there is a... um, ballistics expert who says you know there is um he is 100 certain that this bullet came from this gun and ballistics is bullshit for the most part it's absolute nonsense hardly it, it is open wildly open to interpretation and different experts come up with to different conclusions all the time but it's always sort of presented as sort of gospel truth during these trials and she's interviewing this guy and he's talking about um, ballistics evidence, you know, interpreting ballistics evidence as an art, but that, you know, there's no other gun in the universe that this bullet could have come up with. So this 100% certainty and arrogance. And then when they're, before they go to interview the suspect in the, in the final case, um, his partner asks him, you know, how certain are you that this is our guy? And he says, 100%. In that same way of like, I can't possibly be wrong. There's no room for doubt. Um, which is what an expert does. Like he positions himself as the arrogant center of the universe. When they're trying to analyze one of the bullets and kind of figure it out and they see how the bullet shatters, it's a really good insight of how bullshit this ballistic science the thing is it's nonsense all ever i mean even fingerprint evidence is bullshit um yeah 
Um, as we're sort of learning, everything that has been on CSI is total nonsense. <laughs> um, and has been used to put innocent people away um, for de absolute decades. Um, but yeah, and, and Holden doesn't give a shit. Like he thinks that this guy is the guy who did it. And so he doesn't even allow for the possibility that he's wrong, um, which is part of the whole, this whole sort of toxic masculinity swagger. Um, so do you think like this um, rush for certainty in specific sciences or whatever is a symptom of, or is something driven by masculinity or masculinity impulses or behaviors or whatever i mean you see it in women too so i don't know if it's if it's inherent to masculinity or maybe it's just inherent to um well i mean the case the, the fact that you see it from women doesn't mean anything right like there's a lot of women that um engage in performing masculine behaviors right so yeah but i think it's more there's they're having a conversation with the DA at one point and you know they're asking her not to um, pursue the death penalty for this particular case and she says you know well I'm an elected official and I think it's more of that it's more about reputation and status than it is about um, masculinity I think and I do think reputation and status is, is deeply a part of masculinity mm -hmm. but it's not mm -hmm. um, original to masculinity there's certainly a part of that in femininity so i don't know that we can en entirely pinpoint it into this sort of masculine framework yeah i got you um but um i want i so we started talking about wendy and debbie and then we just started talking about holden again and i'm angry it, about it this. was my fault it was my fault because i kind of put <laughs> whole like you had like this fantasy in between wendy and debbie and i of course i'm the man i know I had, this is all i, I want I, to happen in season two is for them to yeah fuck. but then you had like this beautiful fantasy and then i put holding in the middle of it because they're then, trying to blah. yeah well well anyway um because they, they try to turn wendy into a cat lady in 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 this season and that means me angry she deserves better than that um but wendy is a sort of is the the actual expert who doesn't behave like an expert because she uh, allows for the possibility that she's wrong um and the thing i love most about her is that she has a swagger that is divorced from um the the toxic aspects of of that where she just doesn't put up with any of i mean she's it's not quite the stereotype of the, you know, woman trying to make her way through a man's world, although there's a little bit of that, but she just has this sort of um, dignity to her throughout the series of refusing to pander or acquiesce to these men who are trying to constantly manipulate and control her. Yeah, totally. And um, there's even one season, uh, one, one scene during the season, um, when she's stuck in with her partner and her partner is like being very dismissive about the idea of her joining the FBI and collaborating with the FBI and even kind of takes this very dominant masculine thing of saying like, are you going to leave Boston? You're not going to leave Boston. What are you saying? And then she's like, fuck it, I'm leaving, right? Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I like that scene because it's also it also shows how... Uh, those dominant masculine behaviors can be adopted in in a queer relationship. Someone eventually ends up playing that role, mm -hmm. and um, 
I like that, that even beyond the fact that it's not a man imposing its will, but it's also her female partner, she even kind of stands her ground and stays true to it. So big fans of Wendy here, right? Yeah, Wendy is very good. It makes me worry. I mean, Wendy is sort of not just competence, but um, um, intellectual elegance and uh, interpersonal um, um, queerness um, in that she doesn't she doesn't respond to men in a uh, submissive way, mm -hmm. but also not in a um, entirely dismissive way. She just continues to be herself and refuses to be distracted by them, um, which is what I always aspire to, but I worry that the only reason she has that is because she's a lesbian. And I was thinking about something that my, uh, one of my favorite um, feminist writers, uh, Virginia Dupont, said recently, which is that the only real feminist she's ever known are lesbians, um, because once you want a dick, like you'll uh, you'll throw over all of your value system um, in order to allow that dick to come into your life. Um, and I mean, she put it differently, but maybe not. I mean, it was in French. Who can tell? But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I do feel like Wendy's um, queerness has a vital thing to say about uh, how she sort of re is responding to these posturing, swaggering men. So do you think like these um, responses and ways of behavior that kind of don't fall in one side or the other, do they necessarily have to come from a queer environments because that's a really i mean that's a really strong point that you're making there i don't know if it's necessary but i do think that it's incredibly difficult to build yourself into something in, in a, a sort of not just a um, patriarchal paradigm but in a heteronormative paradigm if you are in fact heterosexual it's so easy because you're socialized in a certain way if you want love and if you want sex and you're constantly told these are the behaviors that will give you love and sex it's so difficult to behave in any in any other way to behave in a natural way i mean there's no i don't think there's any such thing as natural in um a heteronormative patriarchy <laughs> I mean, I think you can sort of like strive to that state, but I, I don't think that it's ever actually attainable. Do you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, it's as bad for men as anything else, but. Um, no, I mean, I agree. I agree with that. Not that I'm trying to do like man validation, man validation here. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say. I will still feel the same way. <laughs> no, but I do agree. I mean, right now, Maybe this is not the podcast to talk about this, but um, uh, um, you and me, it's just the potential exploring what can be built radically and different in a, a heterosexual kind of relationship so far and um, under the framework of a marriage. So, yeah. Okay, but yeah, but, yeah, but you, you spent the day building furniture and I spent the day making dinner. So we're not we're not quite there. <laughs> but you built some furniture as well. <laughs> I built a chair. Anyway. A chair. <laughs> 
So um, one of the things that I like about Mindhunters um, that I think is interesting and new um, and I've listened, you know, I've had, when I've had a couple of drinks and I'm alone at night and it's like 10 o'clock and I'm going to like look for David Fincher interviews on YouTube. And so this is, I just know too much about him and I apologize. But anyway, so he spoke in a couple different interviews that one of the things he wanted to do with Mindhunters was sort of culturally walk back the idea of the serial killer as an evil genius and to just show them as broken people because for you know the last 20 years, the serial killers were not just sort of shown in this sort of Hannibal Lecter, cultured and intelligent and um, um, evading capture because they're just 10 steps ahead and um, so much smarter than everybody that's searching for them, but also charismatic and interesting and compelling it's like no they're just they're just sad broken um despicable people actually which i appreciate yeah that's that's the thing that fincher has a lot like beyond mindhunter like the way that he can deconstruct these uh male um stereotypes of um the policeman the killer the genius the whatever and whatever he's very keen on that um I really appreciate that in Mindhunter and in the gross of his work. Um, also, one thing to note about Fincher and Mindhunter and whatever, um, like uh, the depth of beyond the narrative that he's using and what is portrayed on the screen, like the way that he builds the shots and how some... Uh, techniques of building a specific shot are applied to specific characters and that how can that deconstructs the characters himself and even if you go to the depths of the soundtracks like it's brilliant the way that um he built those soundtracks around those uh uncomfortable subjects one parallel that you can make is um um in the case of the social network going back to it um the body or like the basic layer of that soundtrack was built around this instrument, the Swarmatron, uh, which uh, Trent Reznor has one. It's a big fan of it. And it's an instrument that kind of create in between notes frequencies that kind of sound a little bit uncomfortable and weird to absorb. And that how the whole soundtrack of that movie is built upon that. And in Mindhunter, um david fincher partnered with jason hill um which is amazing um and the way that fincher and jason hill kind of approached the way of creating that atmosphere that kind of uncomfortable feeling of understanding something but being comfortable against it and then foreseeing a transition in between perceptions and characters and so on and so on um hill uh, did a lot of sampling out of uh, wine glasses with water, that kind of weird-ass tunes that come out of it. And that's the body of the main theme and f from the poignant sound pieces throughout the whole season, especially in the last episode. Like before uh, the, the the Led Zeppelin song that happens in, in, in the last uh, scene with Kemper and Holden, uh, 
post interrogation form uh there's like these sounds when when holden is being integrated by the fbi for the second time and this time we're a very different outcome there's there's something in there that makes it feel like so uncomfortable and like there's a transition in between in comparison to the first interrogatory that holden had when which they were like on the record like being very serious and then off the record like oh yeah these kids are so fucked up and whatever um this one was just like a poignant thing because in these interrogatories when the 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 phrase that you were mentioning like oh the only mistake i made was doubting myself it's embodied with that sounds behind it and that's just glorious and that scene is usually positioned as um heroic that scene i mean when when the when the man um stands up to authority and and you know and says something like that yeah the the only thing the only mistake i ever made was ever doubting myself um which yeah is the most michael douglas thing any ever 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 but um <laughs> i mean he's probably said that in every single movie that he's ever been in but um um he's probably saying it right now to himself in the mirror um <laughs> it's um it's always positioned as um that man is now going to walk out um of the office to the tunes of bad to the bone or something you know um and be have this sort of heroic march um which in instead in this particular episode you know he goes straight into the arms of ed kemper the serial killer um and you know has this encounter with himself the one thing i will say is like in every sort of fincher movie there's a, that one song that sort of chillingly embodies um the atmosphere and the meaning of of um of the film and like in zodiac it was the hurdy-gurdy man the donovan song which is so creepy and still freaks me out and then um in this one it's the led zeppelin song and it's so perfect like the music cues and fincher are, are usually pretty impeccable yeah uh, one thing to note is that um and we were talking about it a little bit earlier um there is this, although Fincher is very keen at putting these songs in these poignant moments, and you mentioned the Led Zeppelin one, um, the one that comes to mind right now is in, uh, in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, when uh, when they finally, uh, this guy is, being, is able to catch uh, Daniel Craig and puts him in the basement <laughs> and then plays... Anya. Anya, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's just like this sail away, sail away, sail away. Yeah, the Anya. When this guy is like completely tied up and whatever, but. The bag over his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And choking up and whatever. But Fincher is very keen on that. But um, there's also like one disconnect that happens also in the last episode of the season when, uh, when Holden is doing the interrogatory with this guy that is presumably the killer. And um, there's like this funky music playing in the background. Yeah. And it's like a like a step-by-step -step thing in a perfect plan, which is what we're talking, we're talking about is the Soderbergh moment, right? Like, uh, like in all the Ocean's 11, 12 and 13 kind of movies that there's this iconic theme that when it plays out, it means that all the pieces from the plan are 
going in together, which is a very unfinchery thing to do. Um, well, now now that you've said that, I prefer to think of it as Fincher talking shit about Soderbergh because I, I hate Soderbergh. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, Soderbergh is complicated, oh, but I don't like oh, I have I have such a strong appreciation for those oceans movies. You know, okay. they're they're tales about friendship and about you know like if someone crosses one of our friends, then what is the rest of the group of friends gonna do and then they gather and they make a plan and there's a Soderbergh moment in it with a song um I remember I can't recall who did that uh remix of um Elvis song but in the first Oceans movie was that uh that song I forgot who made that remix but anyway beyond Soderbergh uh let yeah let's say that that Fincher was just like uh Shitting on Soderbergh. Yeah, with that's that what one. that's my hope and my dream is that Fincher hates Soderbergh as much as I hate Soderbergh. Yeah, let's believe that. Um, the thing about the like, the interesting thing about sort of watching the reaction to Mindhunter was, um, how many videos were made of what are the, what's the real story behind the serial killers of, that are portrayed on Mindhunter? So like all of a sudden there were like all these Ed Kemper videos on YouTube. All of a sudden there were all these um, uh, Richard Speck in a, uh, uh, videos and, and explainers like here are the real story, here are the real macabre stories of the serial killers that you that were introduced on Mindhunter. Um, and to me, this entirely misunderstanding the, the show and what the show was trying to do because that's sort of still being captivated by the charisma of the serial killer and the serial killer I, d I never really understood you know in the 70s and 80s they, they were sort of presented as um of the the anti-hero of of the sort of rebel who can't be they were sick sad disgusting human beings um that we created in our society that we should be take responsibility for and apologize for but um but they were presented as yeah as like these weirdly sexy you know girls sent ted bundy their panties in jail and and all that kind of stuff and anyway yeah the, yeah yeah i mean you tell me about it like uh right now that there's like a overwhelming frenzy for the Pablo Escobar figure, you know, like with the narcos and the unstoppable pour of movies about him and his daughter and the guy that falls in love with his daughter and he and how he's in love with Penelope Cruz. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder to which extent that is, uh, that it's like, more of an American thing of reshaping narratives and turning a fucked up narrative into something that could be consumed, right? That because that's the Escobar thing, you know, and and to some extent also all the things with the serial killers and so on and so on, taking a sad story and making it something appealable and that could be consumed through many different medias. I don't know. But also we don't really have we don't really have serial killers anymore. And part of that is, I think, attributable to um 
to feminism. Um, once women were able to sort of um, hold jobs and be independent and get away from abusive shithead husbands, you know, um, maybe men were not um, ritualistically abused um, throughout their childhood and turned into broken creatures that would want to um, maim and murder and torture and etc. Um, and obviously we still have some, but there, it's way down from the peak numbers uh, from the 70s and 80s. But we're still fascinated. Like every single podcast is about serial killers. Every terrible television show is about serial killers. And it, so it's interesting to me that they sort of they've sort of lost their cultural um, or their sort of real world power. But now they have this sort of imaginative power that is deeply disproportionate with how they actually exist in the world. I mean, every, every sort of bad procedural television show, you would think there was a serial killer every single day. I mean, like Dexter. So there's a new serial killer every week. And, and just in Miami, like, how is that possible? They're like, we're only 30 operating in the US total right now. And, but they all are in Miami. <laughs> and Dexter has killed them all. So yay, Dexter. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get all, oh, I get all that you're saying. It's it's complicated, but then if you were to make an argument, this might be like a tangent or whatever, but so yeah, so feminism and a lot of things have changed and then the serial killer is kind of put to a rest, then which are the conditions that are building uh, mass shooters? And oh, I can answer this question because I've read multiple books on the subject. Um, okay, so the mass shooter thing, and this is from uh, Franco Biffo Berardi, the Italian philosopher who I was gushing about yesterday. Um, anyway, so he wrote a wonderful book called Heroes. I highly recommend it. Um, and so basically this, and this is part Ensensberger too, um, the idea that the mass shooter comes from um, partially from the fact that um, patriarchy has fallen apart. So one of the functions or the primary function of patriarchy was to nurture aggression and violence in men and direct it so that they would direct it toward the military or you know, toward corporate culture or whatever. Um, and to create a sort of dehumanized person who would be either willing to sacrifice himself and his body for the quote unquote greater good of war or to um, become unfeeling in a way that they just become these sort of ambition machines that sort of um, uh, advance the economy and so on. So one of the ways that we know that patriarchy is failing is that it no longer knows how it still nurtures aggression and violence in men, but doesn't direct it. So it's just sort of building and building and building within them. And so there needs to be an outlet and some men just do this. And they and they see it as heroic, like they worship each other. Mass shooters worship each other. You know, every mass shooter has files on their computer extensive research files on every other mass shooter that's ever existed. So they see each other as these sort of knights, as heroes, 
um, these sort of old fashioned ideas of what masculinity is supposed to be, except for they are um, dealers of death rather than um, anything else. Dealers of death. I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. That was over the top. So um, I think the last thing to talk about um, before before we sign off on the, on this particular podcast episode is, um, and maybe this is just going to be me talking about this. Why is a why is Debbie's name Debbie Mitford? Why is it De- why is she Deborah Mitford? Mitford that is a real person who loved chickens. She was the only sane member of the Mitford family. She just wanted to like be an aristocrat and and like host cocktail hours and ha- name all the chickens that she raised but did not eat um, because she was a compassionate chicken farmer. Um, <laughs> and and I and I guess a failure at the farming part of it, but um, um, but yeah, that that never made sense to me that her character's name was fucking Debbie Mitford. Anyway, that's that's it. We'll have to ask David Fincher about it. God, when are we gonna? When is he gonna? Have you invited him to this podcast? Me? No, I'm not. No, why would I do that? Um, I need, I don't need to live in a world where David Fincher knows I'm an idiot. Thank you very much. Like I I prefer this world where David Fincher has no fucking idea who I am and so doesn't think badly of me. Um, that's you it. know, funny enough, I think he would find you amazing as I do and deeply interesting, whatever. And then mm-hmm. he would adapt one of your books. No. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.